Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of the book of Genesis, chapters 34 and 35. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Here's another passage that's more famous from the Mosaic Law in Exodus chapter 21. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When we read this, when we read this eye for an eye passage, it seems kind of cruel. It seems revengeful. But considering the situation with Dinah, it shows that it is asking for considerable restraint from those seeking justice for a wrong committed. We're not to take rampant revenge way beyond what the original crime has been. To reinforce that, Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine and recompense. We have to leave it to God. Of course, Jesus himself addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. In those ancient days of Jacob, there was no law of Moses. There wasn't much law at all. Might made right. So Jacob's sons let their anger get the best of them, and they did a great evil. Moses addressed that and tried to make the retribution fit the crime. If you cause someone else to lose an eye, then you don't lose your life because of it. You just lose an eye. In the case of assaulting a woman, the response was to pay the father and care for the woman the rest of your life, the rest of her life. So those were steps in the right direction toward building a just society and coming to know God's will for mankind. Then Jesus came along to perfect that, to understand that understanding of God's will and tells us not to resist evil, take no revenge. Those are very challenging words. How do we do that? There was an example of someone trying to live that out recently who spoke at the Nebraska Walk for Life pro-life rally down in Lincoln a couple of weeks ago. Her name was Jennifer Christie. She herself was the victim of a rape and became pregnant from it. The flyer for her states, against the advice of doctors, friends, and society, she decided to keep her child The story reminds us that God brings healing from pain, and children are part of the journey to recovery, not an obstacle for mothers to overcome. I am not raising a rapist's baby, Jennifer said. I am raising my baby. He is the love that I pour into him. He is the love of my husband who is raising him, siblings who play with him, and grandparents who dote on him. He is all of these things and more. Is he a reminder? Yes, he is a reminder that women can be stronger than their circumstances. 
He's also a reminder that beauty can come from darkness. In the Old Testament, the Bible has several stories of what people can become and what kind of horrible things they can do if they don't know God in their lives. The Daily News has several stories of that as well every day. In the New Testament, though, the revelation of God's Son in the world, the Bible shows us what is possible if we do have God in our lives. And it's wonderful to see when some people, such as Jennifer Christie, have the strength and courage to live that out, even in today's culture. We should pray that we have such strength and courage in this culture also. Chapter 35 of our lesson starts off with God telling Jacob it was time to move on. It was time to leave the area he had apparently been in for a few years. It doesn't say how long they were there, but it was time enough for the children to grow up to experience the things we just talked about. It wasn't really a very long journey to Haran, like the trip from Haran was a long journey. This was only about 30 miles from the town of Shechem at the upper arrow to Bethel, the lower arrow. It wasn't far, but it was enough to put some distance between themselves and people who might remember what they had done. Why did God ask him to move? Maybe it was to mitigate the possible retribution from the tribes and towns of that area. Or maybe it was to take him back to where God had appeared to Jacob when he left his mother and father and his rage-filled brother on the way to Uncle Laban's house in Haran. Back in Genesis 28, this was where God had appeared to Jacob in a dream and had showed to him the ladder or steps to heaven with angels ascending and descending upon them. He promised Jacob prosperity and protection. After he had seen that vision, Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou givest me, I give at the tenth to thee. Even though God had kept his promise, he made, he had the promises he had made to Jacob back then, we haven't really heard much about how Jacob had kept his promise. God was bringing him back to give him that opportunity. Jacob responded quickly and told those who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, that I may make there an altar to the Lord who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. These are good things to remember when we go to worship God. We need to make sure we live good lives and are worshiping only the one true God and not the other distractions of our culture. We need to purify ourselves by going to confession as needed to ensure our sins are wiped away, our soul is clean. And we need to remember in whose presence we are standing when we are worshiping God at Mass. This reminds me of some of baptism as well, when the new child is purified through baptism of original sin. And if an older person, an adult, purified of their, all their sins, they always are given a white garment to signify that, to change their garments. And it is no accident that before mass, pre, or for mass, priests and deacons 
and acolytes at Mass are dressed in a special way. EMHCs and lectors, although not in special robes or albs, should also keep in mind what they wear when doing these ministries. We do these things because it is the right thing to do when leading our communities in worship to God, worship of our Creator. But we should know that we are carrying on a tradition that goes, that's been a part of worship since the time of Jacob, way back then. I'm not sure you know that when priests and deacons put on their garments, their vestments, there are special prayers that are said. When we put on an alb, we say, purify me, Lord, and cleanse my heart so that washed in the blood of the Lamb, I may e enjoy eternal bliss. When we put the cincture on, the rope around our waist, Lord, give, gird me with the cincture of purity and extinguish my fleshly desires that the virtues of continence and chastity may abide within me. When we put on the stole, we say, restore the stole of immortality, which I lost through the collusion of our first parents, and unworthy as I am to approach thy sacred mysteries, may I yet gain eternal joy. For the Dalmatic, Lord, endow me with the garment of salvation, the vestment of joy, and with the Dalmatic of justice ever encompass me. Proper worship requires proper preparation putting ourselves in the right frame of mind, quieting ourselves to hear God in our hearts. The God of Jacob is our God. Our worship of that God should resemble his worship. He had a sacrifice. We have a sacrifice too. His was a bloody sacrifice, ours an unbloody sacrifice. As Jacob and his tribe were on their way to Bethel, it says that a terror from God fell upon the cities that were round about them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Hard to say if that terror was due to the massive attack that the, the two uh, Levi and uh, Simeon had made on Hamor and Shechem, or was it like Laban experienced when God visited him in a dream and told him to leave Jacob alone. I think it's safe to say that the violence was not needed to keep the surrounding communities from attacking Jacob and family. God was fully capable of doing that without Levi and Simeon leading that attack. Jacob's story at this point might sound a little bit familiar. He's following in his grandfather Abraham's footsteps. He has left Haran to move to Canaan. He has passed through and built altars at the towns of Shechem and Bethel. And God speaks to him as he did to Abraham. Both receive new names. Both are given the promise of land and multiple descendants. God appears to Jacob and tells him a second time that he is no longer to be called Jacob. His supplanting days are over. He is now to be called Israel. We will continue to see both names used as we transition to that new name. Jacob has been through a lot since he last spoke with God to hear his promises. God again reiterates his promise of how he will make of him a great nation, a company of nations from which kings will spring up and they will acquire the land of Canaan. It surely renewed his trust and faith in God as he continued his journey. It seems that God visits Jacob before 
another big trial comes his way. And this time, it's no different. Shortly after this wonderful encounter at Bethel, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, goes into labor and dies during the birth of Benjamin. It surely had to be a devastating event, but we don't really hear about his grief. It kind of just says they buried her and kept on going. In the following chapters, we're going to hear how he doted on Rachel's sons more, much more than the other sons, to the point of making them pretty angry. You recall the coat of many colors and how it irritated all the brothers so much. God's love for the two boys of Rachel was clearly a reflection of his love for his beloved Rachel. She was buried near the town of Ephrath, which was the ancient name for what we know as Bethlehem. There's still a monument there revered as her tomb. Whenever troubles or struggles afflict me, I can say, why? Why God? I wonder if Jacob did the same thing at this time. I wonder if he ever found out how his very words were coming true. We can't forget what he said back in Genesis 31 when Uncle Laban chased, down, chased him down after he had fled with all of his family and his flocks. Laban accused him of taking some of his gods from his camp. And Jacob said, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Rachel's death must have been a few years later, and we can't really say that this was why Rachel died. But if Jacob remembered these words, these words out of his mouth, and if he had found out that Rachel had indeed taken those gods from Laban, he might have held himself responsible for her death. His sorrow would have been compounded even more. It was good that God had visited him just ahead of this to give him comfort and peace. It's something for us all to remember. Our words have meaning, and we, they might have effect we may not know about. We must be careful what we say. And then we have verse 22. While Israel dwelt in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Are you kidding me? Another verse we don't hear on Sunday too much. We were doing so well talking about God visiting Jacob and Rachel's death, and then we go back to the rotten things that the brothers are up to. But we can't ignore this. As painful as it may be, what is going on? Let's talk about Reuben. Reuben, as you recall, looking at this chart, was Jacob's firstborn son by way of Leah, the unloved wife. Given their age difference, it is unlikely that Reuben lay with Bilhah in a moment of love and passion. Bilhah was a servant of Rachel, and Rachel had just died. If Bilhah had another son by Jacob, it would legally be Rachel's child because it came through Rachel's servant. Reuben was the firstborn son, but not the most loved. He was born of Leah, the unloved wife, and her sons were not treated as well as the others. They were more second-class citizens. Reuben wanted no more sons of Rachel to stand in his way. If he were to lay with Bilhah, he would pollute her future offspring, any future offspring she may have. 
no matter how much time had passed between him laying with her and that offspring. As if that is enough, sexual relations with the concubine of one's father or enemy lent legitimacy to one's claim to the authority or, in, or inheritance of the father or enemy. This was a power grab on the part of Reuben. He was grasping for his father's authority while also defending his mother's rights. He was trying to secure his leadership and position in the family as son number one. Who knew the dynamics of multiple wived families? Uh, Reuben also knew that his grandfather Isaac and father Jacob were not really the firstborn of their families. Uncle Esau and great uncle Ishmael were cheated out of that position. And Reuben didn't want to see that happen to him. There's a lot more than meets the eye on this one. Remember those mosaic laws we talked about earlier? If they can talk about parapets on houses, they must have something to say about this. And yes, they do. Although written 400 years after Reuben did this, Deuteronomy says, Cursed be he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered her who is his father's. Leviticus has something to say about it as well. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put to death and their blood is upon them. Surprisingly, it's even mentioned in one of Paul's letters. It is actually reported, this is in Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and of a kind that is not found even among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It is clearly a serious sin that needs to be eradicated from God's people. Remember, we heard about this already with Noah and his son Ham, when Ham uncovered his father's nakedness. Well, there's another example in the Bible in the days of King David. Many centuries after Jacob, a few centuries after Moses, David ruled the kingdom of Israel. And recall that he sinned when he took Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, as his own, and then he had Uriah killed in battle. Nathan the prophet went to David and told him that the Lord had spoken to him as follows. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up an evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun in the sky. Many years later, as Jacob was aging, there was a fight among his many sons for the throne. One of them was Absalom. He got a contingent of soldiers from a, and started a, from a different town and started attacking David's town. David had to flee the town. And he took most of his officers with him and, and right-hand men, but he did leave some people behind to take care of things. So the king went forth and all his household after him, and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. So guess what happened when David's son Absalom overtook the town and came to King David's house? 
Absalom asked his trusted advisor Ahithophel what he should do. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom upon the roof, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Another passage we don't hear on Sunday. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it wasn't only Jacob's sons who had some issues. David had a problem child as well. That verse even states that it was an act of rebellion, of, of intentionally trying to take the power from David. But of course, David eventually won. He came back to power, and what did he do? He came back to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten, con ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house. He put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. That may have also been Bilhah's fate. We don't know. Once Reuben had defiled her, she was off limits for Jacob. He must have taken care of her needs, but she probably didn't have any more intimacy with him. Given the normal life of a concubine, maybe that was just fine with her. There were still two other women in the house, Leah and Zilpah, sharing the same man, Jacob, now Israel. The power grab didn't work for Absalom, and we will see in later chapters of Genesis, it won't work for Reuben either. His power grab revealed his troubled, pride-filled heart, and he's going to lose his firstborn status to a different son of Leah. The next two in line, Simeon and Levi, have also proven themselves as unacceptable in Israel's eyes because their anger caused so much harm. It then falls on son number four, Judah. It is his line from which will come the redemption of the world. Now, we'll see in coming chapters that he is not without his own struggles. Yes, there will be more passages that we never hear on Sunday. <laughs> but his transgressions do not rise to the level of his older brothers. Something to look forward to. <laughs> Our lesson ends with Jacob coming to his father Isaac in Hebron when Isaac was about to die. He was 180 years old, it says. It's interesting that we haven't heard anything about him since we have been tracking Jacob and his sons. Recall back in Genesis 27, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He called Esau, his older son, and said, My son, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Prepare for me savory food that I may bless you before I die. Sounds like he's pretty near death at that point. But here we are in chapter 35, burying him. We don't know exactly how much time had gone by since Jacob took the blessing from Esau. But as I said before, it's probably 30, 35 years. When he died, he was 180. So he was about, what, 145, 150 when the, uh, Esau got his swindled. I suppose when you're 150 years old, you may feel like you could go at any time. <laughs> you don't buy green bananas. You might not be around to eat them. 
It's all in God's good timing, though. Abraham was the beginning, a man of incredible faith who endured hardships and trials but remained steadfast. Isaac was kind of a caretaker of the promise, of the covenant. He was a stepping stone, if you will, to Jacob. Jacob, even with all of his faults, is the point at which this revelation of God to the world really starts taking off. We're going to find out that over half of Genesis is written about Jacob and his sons. We certainly see how human he was and his children were, but in the end, they remained faithful as Abraham had. Although Isaac thought he was going to die over 30 years ago, it's all in God's good timing. God blessed him so that he could see God's promise of descendants as numerous as the stars starting to take shape. And it must have pleased him greatly to see how, to hear how Jacob and Esau finally reconciled. It looked like there wasn't going to be any, wasn't going to be any peace at all when Jacob swindled Esau. But with God, all things are possible. And redemption did occur. That story of swindling by itself did not look like it belonged in the Bible. But when coupled with the redemption and peaceful coexistence at the end, there's a lesson to be learned, and we can see God starting to reveal himself. The same is true in our lives. There are events we don't understand at the time they are happening. And maybe, we sh maybe they shouldn't be happening. Perhaps evil has visited us. We may not be able to see how anything good could ever come from it, but God can see it. God could see how good could come from the greatest evil ever to visit the world. Of course, that was the evil of mankind killing the Creator on the cross. So when we are struggling to see good when we are reading the Bible, or when we are struggling through the challenges of life, don't give up. Always turn to Jesus and ask Him for insight, wisdom, patience, and strength to carry on so He can bring His redemption. Be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had their faults, for sure, but they remained faithful in God, and he continued to be with them through it all. Even with our faults, we know he will do the same for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you reveal yourself in these words. We don't always understand, for how can we understand you? You are so immense and powerful. We ask you to give us the strength and the wisdom we need to carry on in reading the Bible, learning of you more and more through that reading. And we ask you to be with us in the struggles of life that sometimes make us want to turn away. We ask you to bless our families and all those we know who we want to bring closer to you. May they be richly rewarded by your graces. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was part two of the book of Genesis, chapters 34 and 35, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.